Well, our passage today is uh, John's concluding words uh, in his letter. We've come to the end of our series. Next week we'll begin a new a brief Advent series. And uh, John says, I write to you so that uh, you may know. He began his letter saying, I'm writing to you, dear children. I'm writing to you, young men and fathers. Um, and he's constantly reminding us uh, of what it is that uh, the Father wants us to know as his children. This passage contains a number of, uh, we could call them tricky verses, maybe more than in other passages in First John. They're verses that if we read them wrongly, they might actually cause us more struggle than good. So it's really important that we understand what John is saying in them. First is the statement in verse 15 about prayer. It may sound like we should expect God to give us anything we ask for. And it raises for us a problem because it seems that God doesn't always give us what we ask for. He doesn't always answer our prayers, at least in the way that we would like. The second mentions the sin that leads to death, about which we shouldn't pray, which may lead us to become settled, unsettled rather, or even anxious about our security as children of the Father. The third is this statement right at the end, the call to keep yourself from idols, which may seem like an abrupt and out of way, out, out of place way to finish a letter. Now, maybe as you looked at that passage, you, you're thinking there are some other tricky verses in there too. I'm more than happy to have a chat with you later, but we'll, we'll focus on these three this morning. If we see these, each of these statements in their context, both the context of this passage and of the whole letter of First John and of the big picture of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus, then we'll see that these three tricky verses actually point us to three wonderful truths that give us great assurance. Remember, that's the whole point of John writing this letter. The title of this series has been That You May Know. It's a sentiment often repeated throughout the letter and it's explicitly here in verse 15, uh, verse 13 rather. John wrote not to unsettle, not to cause uncertainty, but to give certainty. John wrote his gospel, he said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. And so here he writes to those who have heard, who have believed, and he says, So that you may know you have eternal life. I think I mentioned early in the series that uh, it's quite likely that many of the people who were reading reading this letter for the first time were second generation Christians. They'd heard the gospel from the apostles and from those who had had an eyewitness experience of Jesus 
but they themselves had not seen Jesus in the flesh. Remember Jesus said to Thomas, you've seen me and you've believed but blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. John wants to give this assurance to those who have not seen Jesus with their physical eyes but they've seen him with the eyes of faith and to say yes you you believe and what you believe in is true and you can have the assurance that the gospel you heard is true. So the first assurance that we see here is that of coming to God in prayer. Verse 15, we have the the confidence that he hears us and we have the confidence that because he hears us we, we have received what we ask of him. This is the verse that's sometimes rolled out by those who teach a name it, claim it, Theology, a prosperity theology. It treats God like a heavenly vending machine uh, that just spits out whatever we ask for as long as we use the right formula or the right techniques or we believe hard enough in what it is we're asking. Now John has already mentioned that we can have confidence in coming to God in prayer. Back in chapter 3, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now notice that both of these statements about prayer are not blank checks. Each comes with a condition. Here it's because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And in verse 15 of our passage, when we ask according to his will. And the the first, this one in chapter 3, is really a definition of the second. God's will is seen in what? In what he commands and what pleases him. What God has revealed to us in his word, in his commands, uh, and what he has revealed to us about what is good, what he desires, what he uh, wants to see in this world. So it's not a blank check, it's not just ask for anything that you like. I really would like a Ferrari, but I'm not convinced it's God's will, so I'm not going to presume to ask and, and presume that he's going to give that to me just because I've, I've asked in faith. But we have to be careful here that we don't do what a friend of mine did as a young man. Uh, He heard the verse in Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And he thought, ah, so here's a way I can get whatever I want. Uh, In his case, there was a girl that he liked and he really wanted her to be his girlfriend. So he thought, well, all I needed to do now is I'll delight myself in the Lord and then I'll ask for for her as my girlfriend and the Lord will give me the desires of my heart. But he learned very quickly that if you delight yourself in the Lord, then what will be the desire of your heart? It will be the Lord. 
That verse was actually saying, if you delight in yourself in the Lord, then you'll get exactly what you delight in, you'll get the Lord himself. And you, why would you ask for anything else if that is your delight? So if we're concerned with God's will, if we desire to do whatever he commands, if we desire to do and to, to desire the same things that please him, we're not going to ask for anything that's outside of that. There are some prayers that we are guaranteed that he will hear us and he will answer us and give us what we ask. For example, you can pray, Father, help me to love my brothers and sisters more with the love that Jesus has shown me. Why is that guaranteed? Because that's what God commands in his word. Love one another as he has loved us. Or I might pray, Father, work in my life by the power of your Holy Spirit to make me more and more like Jesus. Why is that guaranteed? Because we know that is the Father's desire for us. That is his plan for us, that we will be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. It doesn't exclude us from praying for other things about which we might be less certain. Our jobs, our families, our health, our life circumstances, all of the things that fall into the category of things that I would like to happen in a certain way but I don't know whether this is what God wants or whether he wants the same outcome that I'm asking for. We should certainly pray for those things. We should certainly come confident to ask the Father for anything and know that because of his grace, even if what we're asking for might actually be the wrong thing, his grace covers that because he's more interested in us coming to him as his children than he is in us getting our prayers exactly right. But if we begin our praying with the things that we can be certain about, our mind and heart is going to be in a better place to receive an answer that we may not want or that we're not certain about. But let's look a bit closer at the context of this statement about prayer. I don't think John is just giving a broad teaching about prayer in general. The situation in which he wants us to be confident in prayer is described in verse 16, which leads to our second tricky statement. Uh, Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Do you ever worry that you've committed a sin that leads to death? And in the context of John's letter, I don't think he's here talking about a sin that causes me to physically die as as a consequence. Uh, We heard last week, anyone has the son has life. Anyone who does not have the son does not have life. Death uh, is to be cut off from the life of God. So do you ever worry, have I committed this sin 
a sin that causes me to lose my salvation, a sin that's too big or maybe I commit it too often for God to forgive? Is there a sin that is somehow not covered by the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross? I've met a number of people over the years who are fearful that they've committed this sin. They're convinced that there is a sin that will take away their salvation. And what's worse, because John doesn't specifically say what this sin is, they're concerned that they may have committed the sin without actually realising it. Jesus says that someone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, if you feel that fear or if you ever have felt that fear or if you ever will feel that fear, I need to tell you two things. Firstly, you have, we all have committed sin that leads to death. We've all blasphemed against the Holy Spirit with an eternal sin because we all have in the past or in the present committed the sin that John speaks about in this letter, the sin of walking in darkness, of denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, of denying that he is the Son of God, of making God out to be a liar by rejecting the testimony that he has given about his son. The sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief. It's rejection of the truth of who God is. It's a refusal to glorify God or give him thanks as he deserves. It's the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because we are their children, it's also our sin. We've been uh, on our Friday night Bible study working through this issue of original sin. Adam and Eve sinned and their sin led to death being cut off from the goodness and grace of God. And we are in Adam. We have sinned just like Adam has. So by definition, while someone is committing the sin of unbelief, then forgiveness is as far from us as the East is from the West. While we remain in that sin, we do not have the Son. We remain in death. We are under the wrath of God. So that's the first thing we need to know. We've all been guilty of this sin. But secondly, that's precisely the sin that Jesus came to save us from. So if you are in him by faith, you are no longer counted guilty of the sin that leads to death. In Christ there is no sin too great, there is no sin that can be committed too many times for which the blood of Christ is not sufficient to cover. So in Christ it's not forgiveness but your sins that are removed from you as far as the east is from the West. It's not your sin that is eternal, it is your forgiveness that is eternal. This is the wonderful confidence that we have before God, that because Christ has died and risen, 
our sins no longer lead to death. The sins that we commit every day, the moment we wake up, none of the things we do, none of the sins we commit lead to death because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of sin, which is death. Our debt is cancelled. This is what John wants us to pray about. This is what he wants us to have confidence in as we pray for one another. When we see our brother or sister sin, instead of words of judgement or condemnation, we can come with words of quiet assurance and say, your sin's forgiven because of Christ. Simply come to God and ask and you'll know the gift of life that he gives. We can reassure one another with the words of 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the second great assurance that John is reminding us of. This is what we're reminding one another of as we pray for each other, our assurance, our security in our salvation. Assurance of salvation is knowing, is more than knowing that God just forgives our sins whenever we ask because of Jesus. Salvation is both being saved from our sin and being kept safe from our sin. If I see you drowning in the river, I think I've used this illustration here before. If, I, if you're drowning in the river, I'll go for a walk along the Torrens like Wendy was the other day, and I see you drowning in the river, hopefully I'll pull you out and rescue you from drowning. But I wouldn't be that helpful if I then said, saved you, and then I just leave you wet, gasping for air, on the river bank, in danger of falling back in again. If I was a true friend, I would take you to a safe place. I'd wrap you in a blanket, give you a, a hot meal. Maybe I'd even pay for swimming lessons for you so that next time you fall in, you'll be okay. I might even speak to the local council and say, we need a fence along the river so that people don't fall in and drown. In Jesus Christ, God has not only jumped into the river to save us from sin and death, but he's brought us to a place of safety and security. He's brought us into his own family as his children. Sin and death are no longer a threat in the Father's house. Even though, as John tells us, the world lies in the power of the evil one, We have nothing to fear. Why? Because he says, we know that we are from God. Sin is no longer our captor. The world with its pressures is no longer a threat. The devil is robbed of his only weapon against us, which is accusation, because there's nothing left for him to accuse us of. So even when I sin, even when I sin habitually, Even when I feel that my habitual sin is holding me captive as a slave, I need to remind myself of the good news. The evil one cannot touch me because I have been born of God and he keeps me safe. 
In that verse, John says, the, the one born of God keeps them safe. And this is a clear reference to Jesus. So we are born of God and we know that the one born of God keeps us safe. But see how John chooses not to simply say Jesus Christ keeps them safe. He deliberately uses the same terminology to describe Jesus as he does to describe us, born of God. The only difference is that the first born is in the perfect tense, which, mean, which means an action that began in the past and is completed in the present. We are born of God. The second born is in the aorist tense, which is simple past tense, something that happened in the past and is completed in the past. By using these two forms of this word, born, what John is saying is a person who has been born of God today is protected by someone who was born of God in the past. Jesus. Jesus is both the only begotten Son of God and the one who came to us as a child, born into our humanity. He shows us what it looks like for a human being to be a child of God. The one who keeps us safe is one of us. He walks alongside us. He embraces us in our humanity. He so intimately unites our humanity to himself that we are as secure in our relationship with the Father as he is. So the only thing that could cause a believer to lose their salvation is if Jesus himself were to discard his humanity to take back everything he said or did in his life and in his teaching, in his death and resurrection. Remember that fact when you are losing your sense of assurance. It's not about how hard you hold on to Christ. It's about how hard he holds on to you and how how hard he holds you in the Father's embrace in him. Some Christians aren't keen on this idea of once saved, always saved. They feel that maybe this could lead to complacency where we won't be motivated to to live obedient and righteous lives while I'm saved. Nothing I do can undo that so I can live however I want. They might say, well, serious disobedience if, if we're told that serious disobedience might, lose to, might lead to losing our salvation, it'll keep us on our toes. It'll keep us diligent to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if the Christian life were just about being a servant, serving a master, then fair enough. That's how you're motivated to do your job sometimes, isn't it? If I don't turn up to work, if I don't do my job properly, I'll get the sack. So that can keep us on our toes. I better do my job properly. But being a Christian isn't about being a servant to a master only. It's about being on about the family business. What would motivate you to be an active participant in a family? If you were told by your parents, you're part of this family now, but watch out. Because if you slip up too many times, you're out. 
But what if they say, we are and will always be your parents? You will always be our son or daughter. Nothing you ever do, no matter how bad, will ever stop that being true. Our home will always be your home. Everything we have belongs to you. Well, the first might motivate us, but it will be a motivation of fear. I better do the right thing, otherwise I'll be thrown out. We saw in chapter 4 of 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But the second, the second is a motivation of love. Love that gives us security because it declares to us that all our punishment has been taken by Jesus at the cross. There's now no condemnation for those who are in him. That's a much better, a much stronger, a more perfect motivation to step out and joyfully obey him because we know he loves us. The third assurance is that we know the true God in Jesus Christ in verses 20 and 21. On my way to church each Sunday, I pass three places of worship, all within a block of each other, and every Sunday morning they're all full of people, um, and each of these places all offer a different path to salvation. One of them is a Christian church where I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed Sunday by Sunday. The second is an old church building, but it's now a Tibetan Buddhist teaching centre where they offer salvation through meditation and personal enlightenment. The third place of worship is a trendy cafe where if you have no particular spiritual inclination, you can still find a sense of salvation through community and friends and good coffee and quinoa, kale, smashed avocado, all the things that they offer in cafes these days. But in a world and a culture where choosing your spirituality is like going to the supermarket with all the options before you, you can pick whichever one you like, this claim to know the only true path to God and salvation is seen as arrogant and narrow. And more and more, as Christians proclaim Jesus as the only one who brings us to the only true God, we'll be sidelined. We already are being sidelined. And we may even be persecuted. But this is what we're told here. We can be as sure as we can ever be that Jesus, the Son of God, is the true God and eternal life. And the reason that we can be sure that the God seen by us in Jesus Christ is the only true God is precisely because he is seen in Jesus Christ. It takes us right back to the very beginning of this letter where John described the word of life in concrete terms. He says, this word of life which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This, among many other things, is is something that separates the Christian faith from all other religions. 
All the religions of the world are based on ideas and principles and instructions, things we must do, things we must believe. The Christian faith is based on the historical action of God in Jesus Christ. And through him we not only know facts, we not only know the truth, we know him. Jesus' own claim, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. We can maybe use that as a bit of a proof text to say, well there you go, there's only one way to God and it's Jesus. Therefore, you're wrong and I'm right. We can uh, talk about Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus in a way that makes God out to be stingy, as if he could have made multiple ways, but he decided to make it difficult and narrow it down just to one. But when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not saying this is the only option God would come up with, sorry. He doesn't really care about all those who may miss out by the way, the only way being so narrow which is the way it's often caricatured. In Jesus Christ, God is not narrowing down multiple possible ways to just one. He's opening up a dead end and he's making it a highway. Because apart from God's action, his historical action in Jesus, there is no way to the Father. Because in our sin, we're blind to the truth of who he is. We're dead to him. We're under his wrath. Every other offer of a way to God depends either on self-attained enlightenment or self-achieved righteousness. And God as a just and righteous God has every right to leave us in that arrogant self-confidence that will only ever take us to that dead end of death. But Jesus comes and says, I am the way because death for me was no dead end. In fact, death in me has been conquered. And so in me you find truth because I am the truth of who God is. I am the life because I offer the free gift of life to all who would receive it. So Jesus is the only way isn't a statement about stinginess. It's a statement about the abundant generosity of the Father who freely gives us so much to bring in even those who are his enemies. So that's why while while this final verse might seem to our ears an abrupt, maybe a disjointed way to end the letter, we should see that this is actually the main point of the letter. If John had only been able to write one sentence instead of a whole letter, he probably would have written verse 21. What's an idol? To anything that we set up in the place of God, anything that we love instead of or more than him, anything that we seek to get whatever only God can give us, Idolatry is when we claim that all the things that this letter has been discussing, light, life, truth, love, faith, hope, forgiveness, fellowship, 
when we think that they could be found anywhere else apart from knowing the true God. In John's day and in some parts of the world still, idols took the form of physical statues or images representing gods or spirits. Today, they might take other forms. It might be study, it might be career, it might be possessions, it might be family, it might be status, it might just be ourselves. We all know, don't we, what the idols are of our own hearts, the things that we seek to find all of those things that only God can give us. So it's a simple command, but it's also complex. Keep yourselves from idols. But what does that look like? How do I do it? Well, it begins with a simplicity. We turn to the one and true living God through repentance and faith in Jesus. We receive the free gift of truth and life in him. So simple, yet so deep and profound. And it continues with us putting into practice all that John has called us to in this letter. Trust the Father. Listen to the Spirit as he points us to Jesus. Love our brothers and sisters and our neighbours as Christ has loved us. Follow John's example and make Jesus known to others. Declare the truth of the gospel that he has declared to us, to those around us. And as we've heard today, reassure one another that we may know this complete forgiveness and fullness of life in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence that we have in you because you have done absolutely everything that you could do, everything that we need to know that you are the true God and that by trusting in your Son we have life in his name. Father, fill us with the confidence to know that our salvation is from you that it doesn't depend on what we do and so because of that we are secure in Christ, children in your family. And out of that, Father, give us the confidence to come to you in prayer. Come boldly to your throne. Know that you hear us. Know that you answer us because we are your children. And Father, send us out like you sent out John who proclaimed this word of the good news of Jesus to uh, thousands and thousands in his lifetime as he sat down and wrote these letters to remind those whom he had told that they can have that confidence. Send us out too, Father, uh, to obey the command of your Son to make disciples of all nations. May we be his ambassadors in all that we do, in all that we say, and especially in the way that we love with the love you've given us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's finish with our last hymn.